I will say this. If we are just repeating ourselves, that does kind of fit with what we're reading. Yes, that is true. The the, the meta Forms works. Follows out. function or whatever. That's not the right mistake <laughs> I'm saying, right? Oh, I've done it wrong. Oh, no. But it's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. It's going to be fine. My notes are super weird, but we're just going to make it happen, Jeff. <laughs> Welcome to episode 9 of Drock! Exclamation point. The podcast where we go through the Judge Dredd, the Complete Case Files volumes. We are currently on volume 9. But before I go any further with that, I'm going to say that I'm Graham McMillan. And with me is my esteemed, lovely, and utterly more successful life than I co-host. Jeff Lester, who I'm like, I really had that moment of like, okay, wait, he's literally not describing me. So it threw me. But yes, hello. (laughs) Excuse me, I know exactly who I'm talking about. Anyway, like I said, we're covering Volume 9 of The Complete Case Files, which is progs 424 through 473 mm-hmm. from 1984 through 1986. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're written by John Mark and Alan Grant, as ever, with a host of artists, but predominantly Cam Candy, which made this volume look great. He really did. Oh, my God. Graham, aren't you going to tell the uh, listeners where we're broadcasting from? I was literally about to do that. I was- <laughs> We're coming from the block known as David Owen Block. That's a reference that maybe about five people out there are going to get, but it fits in with at least one joke in this volume. Jeff, did you get it? I don't. Hooray! (laughs) I was going to choose the Dunning-Kruger Block, which also would have uh, tied in with one of the stories in here. Did you get it, Graham? No, I don't get that. Yay! We're doing well. What we do, what not, is apparently Jim and I are trying to just confuse each other with the choice of plot. <laughs> do you want to um, explain yours in advance or when we get to Yeah, it? no, I will, I will explain mine in advance. There okay. is a story uh, in this volume where Dredd is talking to a bunch of cadets. Mm-hmm. And one of the cadets is Cadet Steele, and Judge Dredd tells him that he's so liberal. That's a reference to David Steele, who was the leader of the Liberal Party at the time uh, in the UK. Mm-hmm. And at that very point, there was the SDP Liberal Alliance, which was the Social Democratic Party, uh, and the Liberal Party got in a political alliance where they they essentially like campaigns together mm-hmm. and, and shared votes in Parliament. The leader of the SDP at the time was David Owen. Ah, I see. David- Jeff, would you like to explain yours? I absolutely will. In the Auto Sump Smart Suite story, there is he he. Uh, Sump comes up with his new marketing genius, the Smart Sweets, which people, he he basically talks about how if you eat it, you get smarter, but he manages to avoid phrasing it in any sort of way that actually makes it seem that way. But of course, every all the suckers fall for it. Anyway, all these really dumb people begin taking these smart suites and because they've told that they will be geniuses they believe that they're geniuses and any dumb idea that they think of must be brilliant because they're smart and the Dunning-Kruger effect is the effect that uh, two uh, sociologists Dunning and Kruger or maybe it's psychologists uh, um, were able to study and identify wherein um, dumb people tend to 
overestimate how smart they are. And smart or people who are educated about a subject tend to underestimate how well educated they are about it, whereas people who are undereducated about a subject tend to greatly overestimate their intelligence. In which Jeff manages to subtweet this entire podcast. <laughs> Indeed. Well, anyway, I was so charmed by what a wonderful example of the Dunning-Kruger effect is by these guys who just start pulling these absolutely stupid robberies. And they're like, no, but it's smart because we're smart now. And therefore, exactly, which is just great. We, yeah, we have to be smart because they told us we would be smart. Yeah. So therefore, we are smart. This must be genius. Yeah. <laughs> In case you can't tell what nuts. Jeff and I are, I, I don't know if inspired is the right word, but compared with the last volume, Oof. volume nine is great. Yeah, it really is. It's a breath of fresh air. Uh, I think as as Graham and I were talking a little bit in the, the run up to it, um, it, it's an interesting volume because there are parts where it seems that Wagner and Grant aren't necessarily doing anything especially different than say volume eight they just seem to be doing it appreciably better and, yeah, and also with more enthusiasm which i think yeah. helps a bunch oh a ton a ton they there is a lot more i i would say right from the get-go the writing feels more crisp um there's a lot more attention being paid to the craft the the uh, the Midnight Surfer, which opens this volume, which is a six-part prog featuring the return of Marlon Shakespeare, a.k.a. Chopper, uh, is real, is told most almost entirely through captions across the, the six progs. Mm -hmm. um, and the writing is pretty exquisite. Uh, it starts off being terse and continues to be so but by the time you get to the illegal surfing uh sky surfing competition through uh mega city one the writing is incredibly uh just incredibly solid like very mm -hmm. confident able to convey like it's 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 snappy it it reads like there's a lot of action and in a way it's like uh the almost like the sports version of um like the 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 progs that are set where it's like over the course of one night or something like that where yeah the amount of detail gives it a a lot of um verisimilitude and punch and but is used just precisely i think in balance with the art to it's a surprisingly gripping read the midnight surfer um the Midnight Surfer is such – it's a great serial. Yeah. It's a wonderful, wonderful serial. It's such a leap up from where we left off with Volume 8. Yeah. And it's the first serial – it's the first story in this book. Mm -hmm. So it really feels like Volume 8 – you know, you and I were talking about how it's just a slog. Mm -hmm. There was like two stories in there that we actually enjoyed. Mm -hmm. You know, just like, oh, no, we're just – we're like we're working to get through this. Right. And then Midnight Surfer comes along and it is – so fully formed mm -hmm. it's not just the writing although the writing is great and amazingly confident there's a thing that i actually talked about for a second on the way what tumblr which is wagner and grant like to tell as well as show mm -hmm. right so dread won't just pull out a gun he'll tell the audience what bullet he's firing 
right. or in Strontium Dog, Johnny will do the same thing. He'll put a weapon and he'll he'll announce it, and it's it's a very staccato announcement, mm-hmm. right? right? You know, literally just say heat seeking, right? You know, or boot knife or whatever. Yeah, like he's not saying I'm going to use my boot knife, and there's not a caption going he's using his boot knife. It's right. literally Dredd just saying boot knife. Yes, and that's the same is true in Strontium Dog. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd just be like Electronox, and that's. That's it. Like it's just an announcement. It's 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 incredibly um, sharp and and you know almost too sharp mm-hmm. way of just saying like this is what's happening. Which again, you don't really need to do because the art tells you. Like there's a part in this book where Dread fires a bullet that ricochets, right. and you see it ricochet. Yeah, and Dread is still saying ricochet. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, I, that's a very interesting. Uh, hopefully, we'll get a chance to talk about that. But but, piece. Uh, but this this you get something similar here mm-hmm. where I mean the art in this storyline is fucking astonishing. It's Cam Kennedy and his artwork in this uh, serial is great. It's stunning. Like, is is so good. Yeah, but he does so much here. Mm-hmm. His his characters are wonderful. His. Uh, Urban space is great. Like he creates a very particular sense of space for Mega City One. Yes, which is good because the story is about you know people on flying surfboards flying through the city. So the idea that he creates a sense of space, mm-hmm. like a, an actual, he creates the city around him, mm-hmm. helps significantly. There's a race through the city, and you believe there's a race through the city because he creates the space. Yes, but you get things during the competition where you do just get like these wonderful. Like there's a page of Chopper going through the tunnel and it's essentially just the wheels of a vehicle. Yes. Chopper goes through it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's almost abstract, but this is just fucking astonishing yeah. art. Yeah. Um but Wagner and Grant are again at it with the like the staccato, mm-hmm. like you were just telling you exactly what you need to know. That's it. We're not gonna tell you anymore. Right. Like we're just gonna give you this. And it's like, you know, he ducks under. And you're like, okay, that's all he needs to It's it's so it is just supremely confident storytelling. Yeah. But after volume eight, when we're both like, oh, like maybe they've lost it, they don't seem to know what they're doing anymore. Mm-hmm. This like almost shocking. Yeah. It <laughs> really is. Yeah. Out of nowhere, immediately back on top of their powers again. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was just like yeah, just like snapping to and cranking this out. And like you said, Kennedy's art is great. I mean, it's it really is one of those things where the writing and the art working together take it to the next level because that staccato rhythm in the writing is mirrored by the rhythm on the pages. And additionally, I just think that uh, Kennedy's work in black and white his ability to create figures and negative space to to entirely using black and white to create a sense of movement and pace and pitch is extraordinary Uh, i really do there there are like the pages where even just the the third page of this serial it opens with double page spreads and then you go what is essentially an almost abstract page yes of, of Chopper flying through the city. That's but right. Chopper's essentially in silhouette. Mm-hmm. And the city's essentially in silhouette. Yes, right? And it's just, it's amazing. Like, you yeah. looked at as a design, as a piece of design. Yep. His balance of black and white is is 
astonishing. But you can still read it as narrative. You know exactly what's happening in every panel. Absolutely. You know exactly what's happening across the page. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's so good. Yeah. He's so good. Yeah. Yeah. It it is. It is it's stunning storytelling. Just absolutely phenomenal stuff. Uh people who listen to us uh listen to the Baxter building um probably remember the amount of ooing and eyeing we did about Walt, si- Walt Simonson's run on that book because Simonson is very design heavy and I feel like there's places here where Kennedy really does match him you know in just the terms of like you said that him chopper flying under the wheels of that truck is so dynamic and does so much with so little but so it's and and it all has everything to do with how it's placed on the page and the 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 movement that's created from just this juxtaposition of black and white and reoccurring elements like those circles of the wheels it's just phenomenal work i'm and i'm sure like you uh, hopefully like me you were blown away in part two there's a thing where chopper is um uh, is under suspicion by Dread, and Dread comes to visit him at a sky surfing school lesson to basically. I know exactly what you're going to say. Tell yeah. him, yeah, and it's a beautiful little three panel see two. It's two panels where um, Chopper's hanging upside down from his board uh, with the little surfer's lifeline, and the first panel is him upside down and Dread right side up and them talking and then the next panel just effortlessly reverses it so you know it's from chopper's point of view so dreads upside down and it's but but even when he does that the way he draws chopper's head mm-hmm. you tell that chopper's upside down yes he gets the gravity of the hair yes yes it's yeah. shockingly good yeah it really is and that and that's part of it just which is great because there's so many times where um i feel like it's such a standard comic book trick for people to flip the one of the word balloons upside down to make you like flip it and i love the fact that both of their word panels are you know instantly readable to the to the reader but you do get that sense of things being flipped upside down and weightless because Kennedy's just that good, you know? Yes. Uh, it's, and yeah. it, it's, it's, but also like even, even before that, mm-hmm. Kennedy just having Chopper fall off the board, like wipe out, as he says, mm-hmm. and tangle there just for the couple of panels before. Yeah. It's so visually striking as well. Mm-hmm. And again, his use of blacks in those panels. Mm hmm is great mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. he gives chopper the the weight of being upside down like the the, the kennedy's use of darks on chopper at that point yeah is weighted towards the bottom right so you sense the gravity of chopper hanging yeah which is so good yeah it's so good also i think generally and this may be because dread uh having the the color center pages i'm assuming one of the things that really struck me about Midnight Surfer is each of the progs tend to start more white than black and then move towards more black than white by the end of yeah, each because chapter. Because again, I'm fairly sure, especially on the Kennedy pages, mm-hmm. um, they've stripped out the color. Right, 
Right. And the color is where he would have blacked. He would have placed the blacks. Yeah. So there, there's a, a double page red in particular about that where you see dread. And dread essentially has no black on him. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. every other page, mm-hmm. Kennedy's very, very solid about where he's putting those blacks. Right. And it's absent in, in the, the double page red. So I think it is a case of Kennedy was using color instead of the blacks in those pages. Right. But what's amazing is, uh, to me, how well it works because because of how well Kennedy uses the blacks uh, in each chapter as it goes on to accelerate that um, – the amount the tension on the page like it's just i don't know i just found it exquisite from an from an art side and again wagner and grant's writing is fabulous also i think and this is it's one of those odd things of like i cannot in any way believe that wagner and grant aren't are could have been planning these out as volumes it's literally impossible but Midnight Surfer works so well as the opening story to this case file because Chopper is, as I think um, one or several of our readers pointed out in the comments threads, one of the few uh, alternative heroes to Dread. He's a genuine hero. You know, and he, that's really shown in Midnight Surfer. Yes. Like one of the things I love about Midnight Surfer as a story is. If actually to speak to it as an introduction to this book first, it really is a good introduction because while it's a multi-part story and while we've seen Chopper before, this is almost the introduction of a new uh, idea of Chopper. Before he was this the tag artist, right? Mm-hmm. And now he's a, he's a surfer. And honestly, he's going to stay a surfer from now on when he reappears. Right. But he's a hero now. Yeah. And he specifically is. There's the during the Super Surf race. You get to see that in on three consecutive pages and see how it builds. Mm-hmm. So you see the kids tell their mom, like, you know, it's Chopper. He's He used to be, like, this great tiger, and now he's the greatest surfer. Yeah. That's immediately followed by Chopper doing something legitimately heroic. Yes. Which is going to save the competitor who's in danger because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Maybe he'll lose the race. Maybe he'll get arrested. As it is, he does get arrested. But it doesn't matter. He doesn't think twice. It's the right thing to do. And so he saves the guy's life. Yeah. And then when he gets arrested, he's become this folk hero. Yeah. Everyone's chanting his name. Yeah. Which is a you know, wonderful it, last panel. That yeah, last panel. So, so great. Him and Dread and, and it's choppers in the foreground. Dread's a bit in the background. And it's just surrounded by word balloons of everyone yelling his name. It's just Fabulous. And again, what's great also is, is that, uh, as you pointed out, like uh, Wagner and Grant will occasionally they they do like to tell as well as show, but they don't they but they let that moment be quiet. Yes, They're be, quiet for be it. exactly what it is. Yeah, exactly. They're just like, wonderful. you can read this however you want. Yeah. Um, oh, and one so. Of- Sorry. I was going to say, because this, this was my beginning point like minutes ago, and before I forget it yet again, part of why I think this is so good is it's such a great opening to this volume is this volume, I feel like none of the others where before it is far more willing to paint dread in an ambiguous light. You know, yeah, or, or or straight up negative. Yes, I mean, exactly. Right from, from a Democrat in this book, which yes, is oh my god, 
Um, but before we get there, and we'll, like, I wouldn't be surprised if we spend a lot of time in Letter from a Democrat. Of course. Um, Midnight Surfer is also a good introduction to this book because this book, for the first time in a while, I feel, gets back to the idea of the Dread. As a, I, I, more than once in, these no, in the notes for this episode, I wrote, uh, it's another Eisner story. Mm. Because you get stories in which Dread is literally a bystander. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and to me, in many ways, Dread's a bystander in Midnight Surfer, which is like a five-part story. Yes. Like, yeah. it's not it's not really a Dread story at all. Um, and so it's a nice introduction, but it still has enough of the conflict between the protagonist, who is Chopper, mm-hmm. and Dread, that you can read it as a Dread story. Yeah. You well, know, it's, it's, just, it's just really, it feels, like you said, Wagner and Grant aren't writing these as, as volumes. Right. You know, that this this book was published like 30 years later mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. but it feels like a great statement of intent for what follows yes absolutely i think the other thing i want to mention is, is you mentioned eisner and i think i think that eyes the eisner influence is is strong here and what's interesting is i feel like it's been strong in previous volumes too i think one of the things that works in midnight surfers and in a few other places is that Dread can be interchangeable with the judges. And so he is a representative of the antagonism of the judges, the law against what Chopper's acting out about. And I think what's nice is then you can actually build from that. Like there's that wonderful uh, moment right toward the end where one of the judges says to Dread, like, is that surfing or is that surfing? Like he's, yeah. you know, these guys he's, admire yeah, them. Well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Dread says, surfing, it may be flack, illegal, it definitely is. And it's like, uh, there is something that's, again, that's so, what I love about that is that's so specifically Dread, you know, he, he somehow, but, but he doesn't have to, he's such a character that you can create, you can just evoke in just a few strokes, you know, and it's usually his, you know, whatever it is, I'm against it kind of thing, you know, but, but in a, in a very measured way, because the way in which, you know, he says, he says, Shakespeare chopper, you're just plain creep to me. And yet he doesn't like everyone yelling choppers name. Dread doesn't really give a shit at the same time either. So it's just, I don't know. It's there's a really wonderful balance here in terms of dread is able to become the instrument of the government here and throughout this volume there's points where you're like uh but they can also turn around and very easily with just a little just one mouthful of dialogue make him uniquely dread which in some cases makes him even worse than just regular oppression and oppressiveness, and in some cases, better. And their ability to just fine-tune that, so Dread's kind of always moving in and out of focus um, and and seen from a different light, but but in that best almost cartoon character way, just like, just with a line of dialogue, or just like, there's one point where, as much as I really do, I think Cam Kennedy's art here is tremendous. Um, it really amused me as someone who I still think of myself as a Judge Dread newbie. 
I was amazed at how much opinions I had about kind of um, unshaven dread. You know what I mean? Like Cam Kennedy oh, yeah. does Dre- that Dread stuff. Was stubble. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just like, that's not right. It's a cool effect, but no. You know? Like yeah, it was it's, it's, yeah, it is. And it goes like further through the book. There's more dread with stubble. And it's kind of like, okay, but dread shaves. Yeah. Dread totally shaves. Like this is a guy who totally hated the mustache. The idea and so it's that it's so funny that it's just a small little choice. And I'm like, yeah, no, that's that's not right. You know, I, I think that's really funny that Dread has become a character that is so iconic that you just do something like draw three whiskers on his upper lip. And I'm like, what are you doing? What are you? That's not right. You know, so. I, I have a question before we move on from Midnight Surfer. Sure. You don't really know what's coming up in Dread, right? No. Would it surprise you if I said that the Nets mega epic is based around Chopper? I guess it wouldn't surprise me. It would, how do I put it? Like one of the things that's really fun about doing Drock with you, Graham, uh, is that you generally know you you know with Dread sometimes quite exactly. Sometimes where I feel like you saw stuff in the previous volumes that I'm not sure was there, but it's definitely here in this volume. But what's great is seeing you and the re- the listeners to the podcast. Um, most of the people who comment are people who are very experienced with Dread and Dread's narratives, and so so hearing people talk about Chopper after Chopper's first appearance, because Chopper is his first appearance as a as a graf- graffiti dagger, is a bit of an anomaly at that point in time in Dread, but. Yeah. You know, it was great hearing people being like, yes, and that's just the start. And it was kind of like, oh, shit, really? And then it's that classic, like, paying attention and being on, like, 2000 AD's webpage and being like, oh, shit, there's a trade paperback called exactly. Chopper. There's I, two Chopper books. Yeah. Wait, what's that about? Yeah. Exactly. By volume 11, I think, there was a 26-part story that Chopper is very important in. I believe it. I believe it. And I think that'd be great. And, and flows very, very much from here. Like Super Surf, I want to say Super Surf 11 at that point. Mm. It's part of the story. Mm-hmm. Chopper wanting to compete is part of the story. Chopper being in jail is part of the story. That's great. That's great. You know, and it's kind of great to see like Midnight Surfer, which is such a good story. But also knowing that this is all prelude. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? Right. Which is, which, I, how do I put it? What's fun is seeing you be able to savor that and have the listeners sort of savor that and me not. You know, it's kind of like, the, like the first, it's like, wow, I bet this, this Galactus guy is great. Did they ever use him again? You know, kind of thing. Yeah. It's like, now, what I want to do is I want to switch. I don't think we necessarily want to talk about every story volume by volume because, again, there's, only so many hours a day and probably more importantly, so many neurons in my brain. But I do want to talk about like, so you have the six part uh, uh, prog of Midnight Surfer and it's fabulous. And then you follow it with a four part prog Nosferatu, write his name in blood um, with art by Ron Smith about essentially an interstellar vampire that's a shape-changing spider alien that comes to planet Earth to drain and enslave uh, victims alternately. And 
Um, it was fine. You know, like, did you have that <laughs> I, same I, feeling? The, yeah, the first time I read it, I was, I was, I was let down. And honestly, the second and third time, I dug it a lot more. Mm-hmm. It, it was like at some point, like, my brain turned on to sort of like the camp shitness of it. Well, yeah, but, and I think, I mean, I do think that there is something that is, how do I put it? I feel like Wagner and Grant, clearly I'm starting to suspect, have a weakness for the let's do the dread twist on a modern day monster, you know, a classic yes. monster trope. And it, and somehow it always ends up relying way stronger on the camp shit than I thought. That being said, I think it's maybe part one where Nosferatu shows up, kills somebody, and then on the last panels ends up like it, like in in some abandoned rubble, dumping the body and then praying to his gods and thanking them for the killing. And of course it's, you know, as a, as a reader of a mortal Hulk, just seeing that the next frog was called behind the green door was kind of a, kind of a chiller. Uh, you were like, wait. Yeah, no, seriously. I was like, Al Ewing, how deep do your shout outs go? Damn you. But I, but I also did find, find myself like I was kind of bummed when that part got dropped because that was the only part that was kind of eerie to me you know the rest of the time as it goes on I'm like "Mm, eh," you know so well sorry you were going to hopefully prove me wrong well no I I, what I was going to say is one of the things I appreciated of it on on the rereads Mm -hmm. is how it really is Wagner Grant going let's just fucking do Dracula but fuck it, he's an alien spider. Yeah. Like, they even have, like, bloodhounds, but they're, like, they're alien trackers. Yes. Yeah, yeah, But, yeah. like, to all intents and purposes, it's Dracula. Right. No, absolutely. You absolutely. know, and, like, they're so lazy about it. They're, like, mm-hmm. the alien species is called Nosferatu. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's wonderfully, like, it is, it's shambolic on some level. Yeah. But there's something about that that is weirdly charming to me. Right. And you're right. I do think the Wagner and Grant have a weakness for let's just do a monster story and just put Dread in it. Mm-hmm. I think part of that comes from well, – twofold. I think part of it comes from, again, Wagner and Grant are producing just an unthinkable amount of material at this point. Right. But also I can't quite get away from the idea that I think they're going towards, well, let's give the kids what they want. Yes. Yeah. You know? Right. Like we've just done this mon- this midnight surfer thing. Let's give them something that they want to follow it up with. Well, see, but that's the thing that's funny is midnight surfer is so like yeah up with youth. You know what I mean? Like the Nosferatu almost feels like the opposite. Like it feels like a stodgy cigar fart of a story, and and yet. Hmm, how do I put but, but one again, thing like, that I'm aware of in this volume of Dread were stories that I would read where I was like, did that just exist because that was the cover story? Like the whole when we get to the Messerschmitts and Mega City One story. Where oh, yeah, I, like, I genuinely don't know what that's about. That that one does stand out as a like my note for that is honestly, was there some sort of World War Two anniversary happening? Right. Because there's no like it's a one part story for the listeners who who aren't reading the book, where the story is literally it's World War Two German bombers in Mega City One. Yeah. Like what's going on? I guess there was a time warp the end. Yeah. The like, it, end. It, it, 
comes from nowhere and it goes nowhere. It's the weirdest story. I do think that one thing that sticks out about Volume 9, and I think that is to their advantage, is um, Midnight Surfer, part of what really works about it is... A lot of the stories in this volume are done in ones, and a lot of them are done in ones in ways that you're like, "Huh, you you could have stretched this out for two or three parts, or even like five or six parts." And it almost feels, for the most part, like Wagner and Grant are conserving their energy. If it's something that does amuse them or interest them, but it's clear, like. Anyone else would have taken that like World War II time arc thing and really kind of run it into the ground. And it's clear Wagner and Grant are like, we can't be arsed. We gave you well, your But, I, but again, yeah. like, let's compare this with last volume where we continually said that the stories I've said, they're welcome. Yes, exactly. Right. You know, and here they don't. Here there are a lot of Dunham ones. And yeah. honestly, Dunham ones where – you can imagine Wagner and Grant stretching out for multiple stories. Exactly. Like you, have death of a, you have death of a politician. Yes. In which they kill Dave. Yes. And yes. it's a one-part story. I know. It's insane that that's a one-part story. There's there's a number of them that are just like, yeah, okay. And, that, and it really is uh, like, I don't know, the opening pages of The Lurker. I was like, okay, the way they're telling this story, it's going to be at least two parts wrong you know and and so there's a lot of i think wagner and grant are being sensible about they're not as may have happened in the previous volume they're not over committing to shit that they're not crazy about they're just gonna and for the most part they it is clear they really do prefer doing the done in ones they would rather do it get it and move on to the next thing even if the next thing is something that is an iteration that they've done three or four times before, you know? There, there is this wonderful restlessness that is to this volume's credit. Oh, completely. Completely. I, I, to be honest, even in the multiple part series. Yes. Like, they fucking move. Yeah, they really do. Midnight Surfer like the, hauls ass. Yeah, I mean, the, the one that doesn't, I think, is arguably the one that you and I are going to have the most problems with. Mm. Uh, oh, the yeah. One. Yeah, yeah, which is which really which does drag and then has a lot of problems beyond that. We'll see, Um, that's it, yeah. But like, even Nosferatu, like, fucking moves, right? Like, as as ridiculous as it's sort of as played out as it feels when looking through it, I was like, well, this is only a four part prog, that's pretty brisk. Like, that is that's basically when you you think of what happens, yeah, exactly. No, like, it yeah. really, you know, you have Alien coming down, being Dracula, killing people. There's a mass murderer. He starts hypnotizing people. He has to leave locations. He's a shapeshifter. He gets a judge under his control. Yes. He then goes to a fucking diner called the Stale Bagel, which I love. I love that it's called the Stale Bagel. <laughs> um you know, and, and then, like, the Steel Bagel is his, his base of operations. Then they get in the Alien Bloodhounds. And, yes. Like, there's, there's that for an episode. But it's a four-part story. It's a four-part story. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And it's like they turn, they overturn Nosferatu's quote-unquote 
status quo quo with each prog. So it it really is. Yeah, it's fast. yeah. They really really haul again. Something else that's great about this is uh, I mentioned the David Steele reference earlier on. Mm-hmm. Nosferatu's secret identity is Dudward Hurd. Which is very close to Douglas Hurd, who was a conservative politician at the time. Really? Wow. That's fabulous. And it's like, hmm, a conservative politician. Again, you know, during Margaret Thatcher's reign, you know, there's a lot of stories in this volume that talk about unemployment. That talk about how, yes. like, the being unemployed can basically drive you to suicide or drive you to crime. Yeah. So, you know... Wagner and Grant are, are not afraid of being political. And then you have a essentially a conservative politician who's portrayed as a vampire. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 very strong here as particularly as things go on. Uh, that being said, I I don't want to talk about every single story, but I feel like the first 3 or 4 we're, we're going to have no choice, but I want to talk about how much I love West Side Rumble, which is to me because I honestly was like, nah. It, it's a song, Graham. It's yeah, but again, that's nothing new to me because why can Grant have done that? Like, there's even an entire serial in Robo Hunter See, where they, where, they, where everyone everyone is speaking in rhyme, right? In verse. Well, for for me, as my first encounter for it, this weird ersatz tribute to West Side Story, as uh, among other things, was just I I thought it was pretty phenomenal because it comes and goes. In like, you know, what is oh, it? Yeah, seven it's, pages. It's narrative caption. Yeah, it's narrative caption, but it's also dialogue. Like yes. they literally keep the the, the yeah. rhyme scheme up. Yep. Yeah. Through through the dialogue as well, which is, you know, again something Wagner and Grant have done before, mm-hmm. but they do it really well. And I yeah. think it must be Grant, to be honest. Oh, really? The reason I say that is when Alan Grant was writing the Demon solo, mm. he does the same thing in an episode in an issue of the Demon. Mm. So I think well, he's the, I think he's the singer of the right. of the group, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I did think that that was it. I really enjoyed it. So I can see why you're not in it into it. But let me just say I I found it super awesome. Again, think about the fact that the first three stories of this volume and you, which take place across like eleven, twelve yeah. progs, right? Are Midnight Surfer, right? Nosferatu, which is like campy bullshit but kind of great and again just fucking goes right and then you get essentially a west side story parody in verse in verse yeah no you get a musical episode yeah wagner and grant were off their game for basically the entire year prior to this Mm -hmm. and then they are on their game and also really fucking confident again yeah completely completely yeah no the fact that they did this i was like Oh my God. So I, I really do. I love it. There's probably not much to say apart from that, really, since it's already, as you said, they've done it elsewhere. This is the first time me seeing it for them. And I'm like, Oh God. And also it's a great little, it's also a great comparison with say the musical stuff that Alan Moore is doing. Who's also a very music oriented British cartoonist, but um, this stuff this stuff makes his stuff look a little more overplayed. Like it helps that it's just, it's one chapter. It's not set Wait, for it, something it, like it makes for Vin, Moore look overplayed. I think so. I think so. Like I, I'd have to go back and redo it, but of course more is literally, you know, the, the, I think the prime example is that one installment of V for Vendetta where it's like, 
you've got the music, you know, like the sheet music in the episode. Like, so you can pretty much play along with the comic, which on the one hand, formalistically kind of awesome and amazing. But I, I do love the strange, by setting this in verse, um, even though there's a lot of uh, shout outs to West Side Story. And so it's Sondheim and Bernstein and they're sort of with the sharks and the zits instead of the sharks and the jets. You know, clearly that sort of um, blatantly uh, obvious satire uh but there's also stuff by the time you get to that whole a rumbling a lump a rumbling they love to go a rumbling you know but the zits will go rumbling no more it's it there's something that's like wow it's 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 a joke but it's also like it's how do i put it it taps into i feel like kind of the english folk song sort of Mm -hmm. tradition Mm -hmm. in a way that's kind of like it it point it sort of points to deeper stuff in a way that's very light by keeping it so open and and almost loose but knowing what they're they're doing they're not quite as locked down as the uh, the unambiguousness that comes out of Moore's musical choices because it's so I, I am, demanding. I'm going to risk like completely detouring us okay. horrifically much more than I want to here, but. Like you're nine volumes into reading this, and I feel this is the first time you've really read Wagner and Grant on a, a, any real basis. Right. Right. Yeah. Do you see the debt that Moore owes them now? Um, because I think that Moore actually owes Wagner and Grant and Mills uh, a very big debt. Mm. Um, so in his earlier days. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you can look at something like uh, V for Vendetta. Mm-hmm. Or even when you know you, when you see some of like his humor stuff, mm-hmm. I think it owes a lot to them. You know, I, I how do I put it? It's hard for me because they are so close together as contemporaries. Even though Wagner and Grant really are there first, but only by a few well, years. By, but no, by like a decade at least. No, no. Yeah. The, when does like when does Judge Judge Dredd starts in like what seventy eight? Yeah, but Wagner Grant had been working for a long. Well, Wagner at least has been working for a long time before that. Uh, well, okay, true, but I haven't necessarily. Maybe part of it is I haven't seen Wagner's stuff beforehand. All of which is to say, more. I think that for I've got the untrained American eye, which seems like. All these guys seem to share a lot of common interests and influences. And I always just sort of assume that's all looking to the, you know, some influence in the generation before them, kind of, mm-hmm. rather I, than I just see, cross-pollinated I just see with lot, each other. Yeah, I, I see a lot of, of Mill and Wagner and Moore's early work, especially. But also, like, when you get to, you know, some of his more recent... League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Although in that case, I think it's also more intentional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I think, I think he's purposely calling back. Uh, I'm looking up dates, by the way. Wagner's first stuff was in 1971, and it looks like Moore's first stuff was 1780. Right, right. Whereas so, I was like, thinking very much from like 
2000 AD starting in 78 and then more coming along in like 80. And But I see your, I see your point and I would have to read the other stuff. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, even just reading Judge Dredd, you know, having read eight or nine volumes of it, I'm certainly aware, like, how do I put it? I never realized, and we'll, of course, return to this, what, how much Garth Ennis is a Judge Dredd fanboy in the way yes. that Dan Slott might be considered a Spider-Man fanboy or something? Mm -hmm. You know what I oh, mean? And, and Ennis will talk about this. Like, yes. It's one of the reasons he doesn't like his own Judge Dredd stuff. mm because he's like, I was just like, as everyone else is a fan for superheroes, I was a fan for Judge Dredd, yeah. and I never got out of that. Like, yeah. I was literally trying to write the Judge Dredd I grew up with. Yeah. And, and which, A, which makes sense. Like, it is so hard for me to look at a, a whole quadrant of Ennis's work now and not see that. So for me, it's a little hard and more confusing. It could just be like more with such a huge... Um, profound influence on me and my brain when I first encountered him at like 16 or 15 or whatever. But, but it's, I, I still feel like it's a lot easier for me to see how hugely these guys influence like Ennis and Ellis and M Miller, you know, and even Morrison to an extent. Um, mm -hmm. More is someone that is just a little harder for me to unpack it. I, I'll take your word for it, but it's kind of hard for me not to be like, well, yeah, but weren't they also kind of all, again, in the same way that that Moore has bitten pretty heavily from Eisner as well, for example, you know, mm -hmm. or. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah the, definitely. The, sort of this, the same way that when you read like some of Moore's earlier stuff owes a huge debt to the EC stuff, like Mad Comics. Yes, yes. And Kurtzman is, is a big influence as well. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. And I, you see yes. it here too. So it's very hard for me not to be like, ah, uh, but, you know, but that's, that's, that's sort of more of my ignorance about, about what Wagner and Grant were doing before this. What is amazing to me is just, Knowing how huge Dread is for a generation of comic book readers or even multiple generations of comic book readers, it's amazing to me in a way how slept on some of this stuff still feels. Sort of the same way that we watched when we read The Apocalypse War. I was like, motherfuckers, why isn't everyone reading this and talking about this like <laughs> – you know what I mean? Like, why isn't this like a fucking staple in everyone's comic book library? And there there was shit in here where I'm like, I feel like American comic book readers, everyone who talks about like how fucking hot shit Walt Simonson's uh, Fantastic Four run is or his Manhunter run is. And they're absolutely right, by the way, um, should also just like know Midnight Surfer by heart. Like, I'm just like, that story, why isn't that story just a fucking perennial? Because it, it and, and some of the volume, some of the stories in here, like, uh, particularly Letter from a Democrat, like, I had heard you mention it once or twice, so I knew it was going to kick my ass, and we'll get to talking about it in full later, but holy fucking shit did that kick my ass, you know? That's yeah, right. an and, amazing and, but it's, piece. There's, 
Yes, there's such you know you're talking about Kennedy here and and you know Kennedy's artwork and how people who like Simonson and all that should should be appreciating this. Like it's all through this, mm-hmm. even in the 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 Stuky story, which is just a one-off. Like the the panel where he shows the sector house, mm-hmm. and the sector house is a judge helmet. Yeah. Yeah, oh it's my such god. Such a wonderful piece of design. Yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, no, there's there is there's shit here that is absolutely fabulous. So, I wanted to say before we just to mention the one off with the Stuki, this felt like the first um reintroduction story that I can really remember reading and being like, "Oh, this is a new readers Judge Dread story." You know what I mean? Yes. Like this 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 seven page story feels like here's everything you need to know about Judge Dredd and the setting and this is your introduction. It's it's a jumping on point and it's really well done. And I wish I was sophisticated enough to sit down and break sort of focus on what Wagner and Grant and Kennedy are focusing on as important. But I'm not even really sure it's necessary. I'm not smart enough to do it, but. Like you said, that classic when when Dread hollers out, doors closing, ricochet, and then you see the ricochet, the bullet go into the elevator and blast around and blast those guys. It very much reminded me of that first Dread story where it's like, okay, here's my gun. Now I'm going to use each of its yes, cool exactly. little bullet yeah, settings. Exactly. You know? yeah. Because it is. It's a very clear mm-hmm. – uh, I was thinking about this the other day just in, in – uh, uh, not actually in relation to this volume in particular, but into this relation to this era of dread. Mm-hmm. 2080 in the mid 80s is still essentially a kids' comic, mm-hmm. and it's still being written so that kids can read it. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm reading 2080 at this point, and I am what nine years old. Holy shit! Ten years old. Wow. Um, but it works on that level still. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because you do have dread say ricochet right so you understand what's happening Mm -hmm. but it doesn't feel you know as someone who's 45 years old now that they're writing down to the audience right right it managed to do it in such a way that it feels like a stylistic quirk yes as opposed to like overly expositionary right it's kind of amazing. Well, because it, cause it, yeah, like you said, it's a stylistic quirk, but it's also, it does fall into that grand tradition of having superheroes yell things when they do something cool. You know, it's, it's so, it's so like Johnny Storm yelling flame on, you know? Which yeah, is, it feels like a catchphrase as much as it feels like Exactly. Himself. And so as a kid, you're like, that's unbelievably awesome. And as an adult, you're like, it's it's weird how this works, and it it does work so well, like you said, because Grant and Kennedy have have pared it down. I think you know, it's such a, it's it like everything else. Nothing, even even the even the little introduction ticks aren't dwelt upon long enough to make it feel like you're being talked down to. You know, it just it moves right along. So, so we could talk about the auto smart, uh, auto sumps smart suites, which are... do you have much to say about auto sump? Because to be perfectly honest, Jeff, <laughs> I thought they no, I'm serious. Like it's yeah. it's an auto sump story, and they're fun. Yeah, but it didn't even really seem like it advanced the auto sump thing. No, 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 no again, no, no, no. 
like at this point people cycle in and out of 2000 AD like it's it's built as a comic that will have readers cycle in and out yeah and like you know 1950s Superman right. you can just tell the same story over and over again and make it entertaining yeah that's fine yeah but it reads like that it reads like here's the auto sump story for this generation of reader um you're right and I think that's maybe why a there's not much to say about it other than I just thought that it was really I just thought it was funny. Like it's one of the things that I think is uh, Wagner and Grant can be really funny. Um, I don't know, sort of like generally and super, super funny when they put their mind to it. I was surprised when I saw the auto sump smart suites, I was like, oh boy, you know, and it's Ron Smith. I think this sort of stuff tends to be closer to his wheelhouse anyway. So it's, fun for that regard but like when the one dumb guy convinces the two other dumb guys that they should rip off the labs and then he's like okay let's go and then he gets run over by a truck and then they're just like okay let's do it you know (laughs) because because they're like well we're geniuses so you know it, and it's like they're trying to rob a place that is only computer credits like every part of it was just um goofy black humor as opposed to sort of the bitter pitch black humor that you get in some of the other stories this volume which in some areas also made me laugh but this one i guess what i'm just saying is is as opposed to if i had to choose between this volume's annual auto sump story and this volume's annual fatty's story i would choose i would choose the auto sump story Oh, God, I'd choose the fatty story. <laughs> Do you know why? Why? It's a, it gets a happy ending, well, which never happens in Dread. Yes. Yeah, I know. I it know. It genuinely does. It yeah. gets a happy ending, you know which what? floored me when I read yes. it. Yeah. You know, for all that, I mean, there's no getting around the fact that, you know, the fatties is, uh, shall we say, questionable yeah. in terms of, of taste. Yeah. Like, every time they appear. But, like, it's a happy ending. Two-ton Tony is is a nice guy who works hard for the thing that he wants to do to provide for his family and gets it. And Dredd is okay with it. Yes. Like, that never happens in Dredd. No, I, I – and I get that. But for whatever reason, maybe that's where I'm like, it's kind of a step too far. Like – the happy endings and dread that we have seen, like in that sense, I prefer the previous fatty story where he dies a champ, you know, and the coach was like, he was the best damn fatty anyone ever could have had. So for me, I feel that the problem with the two ton Tony story is because it ends so it is such a super happy ending. I'm like, it, it practically comes off as. Um, even though it's supposed to be satirically saccharine, it just comes off as saccharine. Like I preferred the previous fatty story where he, he, like he dies being like a champion, sort of the same way that Midnight Surfer is a happy ending and it's Chopper being dragged off to fucking jail, but, but he doesn't care. You know what I mean? And so I feel like that type of ending for me works a little bit better. The two, the two ton Tony thing, because it's so happy, I don't trust it. I, I feel like Wagner and Grant are being like, 
God, we just love ta- telling stories about the fatties so much. We love writing this shit, and we know that people don't think that it's cool, so we're going to placate them by being like, see, he's a great guy. We're oh, not see, making I, fun I, of it. I agree you know? that like, fatties is really cool. <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> again, you know, this is the unenlightened 80s. Yeah, right. I, in fact, okay, we've talked about the stories that are great. Can we talk about the story that's not? Because oh. we are obviously going to talk about... Yeah, um, we might as well get it out of the way. I like, there, there's at least two more stories in here that I think are, like, you know, all-time great Dread stories. Yeah. But before we get there, mm-hmm. can we talk about the Warlord story? Yes, the Sh- Shojan War- Warlord of Xi. Uh, yeah. One thing I like in it, and I genuinely do like it, which is his assistant clearly comes from, like, New Jersey. Yes. Her whole, <laughs> Which is, like, like, a fun joke. Yeah. But it's, like, an eight-part story, which is basically, like, just based on racism. It really is. It really is. There's the the fact that, that, that Dread is bursting through doors, um calling shojan tojo and then a few other stuff like oh it's just it's just racist and it's hard because there's that weird like oh you know it was the 80s and the 80s were racist and that to me is a really kind of bad excuse like i was going to school in san francisco you know well but again america and the uk are different yeah. And I'm not saying that's to excuse the racism, Jeff. I'm no, no, not. no. I know. I but know. I think saying I was going to school in San Francisco, racism wasn't wasn't like that, is utterly pointless when you're comparing it to like the UK at the time. Uh, but uh, but I guess like that's you're what in I'm a saying. liberal bubble in a different country. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, absolutely. But England is still like, how do I put it? You're still – it's the 80s. You have other cultures through – certainly sure, throughout the sure. larger cities in England. Sure. And at that time, like, you know, quote-unquote uh, – shit, what was it called? Alternative comedy was, like, big and a lot of that was pointing out. Like, these people are racist. These things are racist. Like, yeah. there was awareness that this shit was not cool. Yes. Yes. 100%. Right. And However, so, I think that yes. the mainstream culture was still – like perfectly accepting of this bullshit and to be honest the age of these writers and of the editors is perfectly accepting of this as well because i think their defense would be no we're showing them as badass we're not being bad racist we're not saying they're less Mm -hmm. we're saying look at these guys Mm -hmm. i mean at one point the the they call through to like the the country where he comes from, and it's literally called Nipsit. Yeah, yeah, and so, it's just like, like that's shocking. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. legitimately shocking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah, it it's everything about that. You know, he's a psychic who is a samurai, and he comes to make the seven samurai who were samurai warriors made out of psychic energy, who are giants and destroy the city. And it's just like fucking shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's and again, Cam kind of draws it, and it looks great, but it's fucking trash. Yeah, it really is trash, and it's. Ah, it's and and I've I have those I had those moments where I'm like, 
what the fuck you guys? Like, it's such an extended what the fuck you guys. Like, so honestly, the thing that's hard is it's re- it is hard for me to separate the races, my my reactions to the racism and my genuine, like, annoyance with it um, from the story itself. But like you said, Camp Kennedy's art looks great, but... Apart from that, I mean, and there's like one or two little cool moments I do sort of like when the Seven Samurai show up, and because well, nothing else, like it's it's a break from it's it is actually the rare story in this volume that is over long as yeah, well, right? Like there's there's not enough story for the length of time this story takes. Yeah, yeah, you know, like there there's I, I said I'm looking at it, it looks like there's only two chapters before. Mm-hmm. Uh, before the the seven samurai appear, but even yes. that feels too long. <laughs> it does. Well, it does because it 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 sets each of the characters up, and then it 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 does feel a little bit like this was in in previous progs. I I think I felt I feel like Wagner and Grant would have had this be sort of the opening salvo in kind of a longer prog, like it would have changed up and we would have found out where Shojan came from and what he wanted and who was backing him. And then it becomes some other weird thing. But in this one, it's just like, nope, it's just big ass dudes. And part of me does enjoy like when they fire their arrows and they take out that one uh, H wagon. That's awesome. Or like the great sense of scale that Cam Kennedy shows. So the giant samurai dudes are just kind of walking along with their knives and swords, just impaling people. It's 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 cool, and yet at the same time, it's utterly empty. Like Shojan is such a non-character because, of course, he's just because um, he's, he's 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 a racist troll. Yeah, he's, he's just a, no, a yellow, he's yellow a, peril, you know, like yeah. evil war mastermind. You know, but with also mysterious powers. Yes, but also he exists to make these giant monsters appear. Like there's right. nothing. There's no real story there. Yeah. It's like at some point they're like, wouldn't it be great if Seven Samurai were massive mm-hmm. and were rampaging through the city? We'll work out some way to get there. Mm-hmm. And they took like the laziest way to do it. Yeah. 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 Completely. Completely. And it is, it's kind of fun seeing like, oh, like the great thing about reading nine volumes of the complete case files is tro- you watch tropes grow from the ground up. And so seeing a division a, ju- a division judge, division head judge, sacrificed themselves, you know, um, dies so that everyone else may live because it's <laughs> their responsibility. I'm like, that's a cool trope. I got to admit. Right. But yeah. Seeing, seeing Magruder quit as a result. Again, that was great. right. Honestly. Like yeah. um, seeing the the um, Haunting of Sacred House 9 yeah. machine come back. Again, great. But it's all... Like, the last episode of the story is actually kind of great because of all these things, right? Yeah. But getting there is painful. Yeah. Well, and I would even say, like, those last two or three pages, because because Chief Omar uses the machine from The Hunting of Sector House 9, triumphs but dies, and then Magruder quits. Like, there's the Beggar's Banquet, which almost feels like a fill-in issue. But yes. when you come back, you get the chief judge resigned story with uh, Cliff Robinson art. And it's, it's 
something that you almost never see in Dread. It's 100% continuity. There's no crime or anything. It's all fallout. It's all the changing of the guard. Uh, and Magruder gets the very cool, like, gets to walk off into, you know, uh, the the well, cursed earth. And, it's, and does the long walk. And it's just, it's great. It's a great chapter. But it's also, what's amazing to me is how much, by this point, the mythology has has so much weight to it that it easily makes for a gripping six page read mm -hmm. this sort of despite nothing happening in it exactly again you know? if you're if you're a newcomer to dread like this is the rare yeah. chapter in this volume yeah. where you can't imagine a newcomer reading that and getting it yeah absolutely you know because it does require not only having read the 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 seven samurai story right but like having read dread up to the point where you're like shit a chief judge is quitting yeah and also like for that matter hershey's on the council of five or for that matter the council of five is a thing yes yeah you know you need you need to have all that context clues for the story to properly work yep um but if you have those context clues it feels like a really important six pages yeah absolutely so much more interesting and enjoyable than everything that led up to having that happen so it's it's kind of it's kind of wacky it's kind of weird that that ends up being such a powerful installment and i think one of the things that's great is because wagner and grant are so sparing with their continuity um, when they have something like this that is just 100% it. It's got, it's really, it really had a huge punch. I was like, oh my God, that was amazing. And then I'm like, wait, if you look at all the component parts, like it's got nice art and it's totally what, well. What was but, amazing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What was amazing, yeah. you know? So, But again, because you do have the parts, it is amazing. Yeah. Like there is this moment of, of, of this. It, this means something. Yeah. This means something in a way that other reds don't mean something. Yeah. You and I love this volume a lot, mm -hmm. right? Like both of us find a lot of stuff to really enjoy in this volume. Yeah. But as you said, the majority of them are one parts. Yeah. The uh, majority of them are, um, you know, dreads latest adventure. Mm -hmm. And they're done great, and they're very enjoyable. And, you know, they have great art and everything. Mm -hmm. But this has a weight to it. Mm -hmm. This actually feels like what is going to follow will be different. Mm -hmm. Which is ironic, because, like, you know, the next story is, is not. Like, it's a fucking Adrian Mole joke. But, um, but nonetheless, like, these six pages, for people who have been following Dread... Mm -hmm is a changing of the guard that feels like an event. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and so it really does have this moment of like, oh, shit, mm -hmm. like this is something, this means something. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It, it, it contributes to this field that, that Wagner and Grant are so good at with Dread where they don't, they continue to build up all these little details and so many of them feel like throwaway details. In a way, it's almost the exact opposite of what you see in American superhero comics where every detail is given ridiculous amounts yes, of importance yes, right out of the gate. 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. At, whereas what's great with Grant and Wagner is they do it very much like real life. Something's introduced. You literally have no idea if it's going, if it's ever going to come up again or not. So I like, I didn't like the uh, two ton Tony Tubbs story, but I love the fact that somebody in this was like, yeah, and I'm Tony two, I'm two ton Tony Tubbs. Yeah, right. Yeah. Which is such a, a lovely, again, piece of world building. Yeah. It's such a great piece of world building because this reference that if you've not been reading Dredge, you're just like fucking whatever. Okay. Right. I guess that's a guy. But if you have read the rest of this volume, you're like, oh, I get it. Right. Okay. And yeah. Coming three, three panels after the reappearance of judge hershey you're just like holy shit like all of a sudden it's the the world feels so deep in such a few pages because of that and it's it's a it's such a rare uh, it's such an impressive achievement and what's great is it does feel like it it's accomplished by completely inverting that sort of superhero trope so and and one of the things i like as well is you know we talk about how this this chapter this this episode these six pages feels so uh impactful because of the past of dread mm-hmm. but for people who know the future of dread oh God. like there's there's a lot of stuff here we'll like see. there really is a lot of stuff yeah not least of which hershey becomes chief judge eventually right and so this is the first time that hershey steps up yeah you know right. like we know what happens to silver mm-hmm. well i don't no, but that's what I'm saying. Like people yeah. who are familiar with the material and know right. what happened to Silver, and you're like, "Oh shit!" Right. Like this is like this is how Silver got the job. Right. You know, there's all of this material in there. Well, that is that is it, it's this. But at the time, as you say, like you don't know any of that, and it still has that that feeling. And also, you don't feel like you're being set up the same right. way that in American comics you would. Right. You know, someone being like, "Here is the new boss," always feels like set up in American comic. Right. Right. No, exactly. And what I do love about it is basically Magruder is like, I, you know, everyone's like, you know what? You just made an error of judgment, which is great because it's such an evocation of. Of the story in the last volume. Exactly. When, when Dread comes to Magruder and Magruder's like, you're making too much of it. Like we can't afford to get rid of you. But here Magruder is like, okay, I want your opinion. And three of the members of the five are like, you're fine. And Schenker's like, no, you've made the right decision. Um, and, and Magruder's like, okay, in that case, I override the vote. I'm leaving. And you three who were trying to let me off, your judgment's compromised too. And you have to leave the department. And so this thing where she's like, Schenker, I'll be appointing new members to join you on the council. Like there's a little moment for me of like, that doesn't sound good. You know what I mean? Like, and who knows whether it will be or not, but it's just such an amazing, weird mix of like, somehow my judgment is compromised. And yet I'm so completely trusting on my own judgment that my judgment is compromised, that I'm not listening to anyone else is like, yeah, but also like my judgment, I am flawed. Yes. And because you didn't, because you don't agree with me about my flaws, I'm replacing you with people I've chosen. Yes. It's just, it, it, what I love about this chapter is on the surface, it doesn't tell you how to feel apart from the pretty awesomeness of Magruder going out on the long walk. But I read this chapter being like, oh, this isn't going to turn out well. 
you know, and who knows, maybe it won't. But everything about that was like, this is not, this is not good. This is not good. Like, so it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. The cockroach story is a is a joke about what? Because I feel like Adrian Mole. Uh-huh. Adrian Mole was like a, a a really successful book in the UK in the eighties. Uh-huh. The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole, aged I think thirteen three quarters, and it was like uh, a, it launched a series of books, and Adrian mm-hmm. Mole was basically just like this this nerd who was in love with he was in love with pandora that was the name of the girl i honestly don't know why i remember that uh, i don't i've never read the books oh interesting <laughs> I, I know that there was a tv show which mm-hmm. is why i like i kind of know mm-hmm. uh, but it, the series went on for 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 a long time for a really long time sue townsend wrote it and so it's it's basically like the title comes from that and the story is just a uh like it's unrelated entirely to that i should say right um but it's sort of like very much a throwaway, right? Mm-hmm. And then you get followed with the last voyage of the Flying Dutchman, again very much a throwaway. Right. I'll be with, with Brian Talbot Art. Yes. And then you get kind of out of nowhere letter from Democrats, right? Which holy fucking shit! And and so what I think is actually interesting is uh, for me, um, I will say, and it's not worth spending more time on it than that. But the secret diary of Adrian Cockroach, even without knowing the joke, it's it's an enjoyable done in one in part because it's it it's the most Eisner of Eisner stories. It's it's a fucking Dredge Dread story told from the point of view of a cockroach like mm-hmm. it doesn't get better. That, I, honestly, I honestly think the Lurker story is more Eisner. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, well, you know, it's funny. I would almost disagree with you because the lurker seems I think it's a swerve. The lurker starts off like it's going to be an Eisner story and then it becomes an EC story where it becomes a the punishment yeah, sure. fits the okay. crime story. Sure. So, yeah. Okay. But so Last Voyage of the Flying Dutchman is because it is a perfect little sync up of it's Talbot doing really gorgeous art. And so it's a perfectly satisfying done one. Every all the little pieces match up. It's a it's it's you know, it's designed to be a good read. And then but then Letter from a Democrat just manages to be a cut above. All of which is what I'm saying is is they're they're done in ones of varying degrees, but none of them suck. You know, it's just yeah. letter from a Democrat is like holy Let, fucking Letter shit. from a Democrat is kind of the in not only the secret weapon of this book, yeah, but it's intentionally or otherwise fucks the status quo of the strip, yeah, like quite dramatically by being very clear, and and it does that, and then immediately goes back to the status quo afterwards. Yes, but you can't read it the same because Letter from the Democrat is the first time that they're very clear the judges are fascists. Yeah. Right. Like it's it's not ambiguous. The judges are fascists. Well, you know, okay, so I do want to say it's the it's the strongest and most um absolutely unambiguous, but let's not forget earlier to like there's the two part the man who knew too much where basically a reporter discovers that the judges are pumping tranquilizing gas into which, the air. which is it's the other story in yeah. this volume that I love, yes. and the, the combination of the two 
is great yeah. because it is very clearly like the judges are the bad guys. Yes. And I, I think one of the things sort of in a way, again, part of why the Midnight Surfer is such a great opener for this volume is this volume really does put like is the varying levels of like the judges are fascists, the judges are the judges are fuck ups. That amazing story, the cadet story, where at the end one of the cadets is like, but why don't we try and make life better for these people? Won't that wouldn't that be a better solution than just bludgeoning them into submission and and they're they're the whole like what are you a liberal like all, throughout this volume part i i feel like part of what gets wagner and grant out of their doldrums is they pay more attention to their craft but they also stop kind of toying around with the idea the sort of the will will they or won't they of is dread a good guy or a bad guy are the judges good or are they not like there's always a little bit of a well seen from a certain light kind of angle and what's interesting about this volume is is it really does that that dread and the judges at various points in this volume are played as villains like th this volume really does i feel in a lot of ways lurker aside side with the outsiders and the freaks and the mutants in a way that um, was a little hard to tell in previous volumes. Like you got this sort of the sense, but at the same time it was, there's enough of the making fun of the outsider in the other volumes. And there's plenty of that here too. But by the time you get to letter from a Democrat, to me, part of what works about it is it is a it is such a gut punch of a story, but it also fits in with the rest of this volume, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, well, you you know the one story you've not mentioned in all of that is one story that is not explicitly the judges the bad guys, mm -hmm. but the lemming story. Yes, is is shocking. Yes, uh, in this book. Yeah, no, because mm -hmm. it is very clearly the future is driving people to suicide. What are you going to do? I think one of the things that is great about this volume overall, in a way that's with the, with the judges being the, the new circle of five or the lemming syndrome is fucking fabulous because it feels like a refinement on where they have been going for a while now, where it's like, Kind of with the in the intro, the start to block wars has all the people going nuts and everyone ramping up. And what's great about the story is you at that time, you don't know if there's anything behind it. Like you just think like Jesus. And then it becomes the hook for this big story that ends up moving into the apocalypse war. What's great about the lemming situation or the lemming condition is it just ends and it goes away. Like so many of these stories are brave enough to not give us closure and to and knowing that that's going to haunt you and like and god letter from a democrat really just takes that and moves it to a completely new level right like oh oh my god the last the last panel of that of this of letter from a democrat kills me every time um 
people who listen to this podcast, you should find the story and read it if you're not reading along with us. I it's so good, I'm actually afraid to loathe that I'm loath to spoil anything about it. Um, which is why I'm just sort of reduced to babbling, you know, uh, uh, laudatory comments. I will say that I did a little bit of research. And what's amazing about Letter for a Democrat uh, is that it was originally supposed to be a, a more amusing story in which the terrorists who take over the TV station are a bunch of nudists from a nudist colony. And the editors refused to let Wagner and Grant do that. And they were annoyed and frustrated and they were kind of like, well, fuck, what are we going to do? And they came up with the idea of making them be actual pro-democracy activists. And, and, and they're like, and then we had something interesting in like one of the world's great understatements, you know, like it's, it's, is it, and also, isn't it creepy, Graham, how relevant this story is? Um, you know, considering we're watching like protesters in Hong Kong or you see somebody mention the protesters in Hong Kong and suddenly they're stripped of their e-gaming championship titles and suspended from play for a year. You know, it's it's quite a story. And and what is really interesting to me about Letter from Democrat as well is it feels like it's a story that progressively gets more serious if that mm -hmm. makes sense hmm. like the opening three pages mm -hmm. feel like even with the the actual letter which makes it clear very very early on this is going to be a tragic story right you know like it actually starts your guard when you read this you'll know i'm dead yeah right you know right so it's clear this is not going to end happily right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but there's by the even the third by the third page, you're like, mm, okay, this could still be like a funny story. They're taking over the breakfast show, ha ha. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it's once they start making their demands, mm -hmm. and their demands are literally just let's be democratic. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. You know, let's stop being fascists. Right. Let's be democratic, and you see the response to that, and the response to that is so. Horrible, you know, right. so very, very, very dramatic, um, and 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 their response to that response, if mm -hmm. that makes sense, mm -hmm. they are prepared to like not just prepared to, they know they're going to die. Yeah, you know, old people only remember martyrs. Yes, they say, and they're not upset about it, or mm -hmm. they're not surprised by it, perhaps. Mm -hmm. You know, it's yeah. It, it it feels like it progressively gets darker and darker. Mm. Well, you don't. Sorry, on you. No, no, no. I will say part of what is. I I think I know exactly the turn about it because on page four, the first panel is um, you've got the person saying, you know, she's Hester is reading their their uh, charter, and so it's. One, an immediate return to democratic principles. The people must control the judges. The judges should not control the people. And in that same panel, one of the monitors for the judges says, terrorist attack, channel 48, with an exclamation yes. point. It's that quick. There's no, like, 
like even today, like if you look at a story or a thing on a TV show, like there will be a lot of like, oh, are we the bad guys? And then they end up being the bad guys and then being like, but maybe we are the bad guys. And what's amazing is this feels very much like real life where it's like you present a challenge to the powerful and the powerful immediately move to wipe you out. There is not a pause at all. You know, it just goes right into people being, you know, like when, when that one guy says, you want us Hitler, come and get us. And you see dread saying done. And it's just one amazing panel of overlaid of people being shot, you know, and it does, it doesn't show it. It's that classic, almost like, you know, psycho where you never see the knife going, you know, hitting Janet Lee, but you just see people gunned down by the judges before your eyes without any hesitation at mm -hmm. all, you know? And then you even just to draw, uh, underline it, Dread shows up um, and talks to the the husband of, you know, Hester, the woman who whose letter is writing the story. And, you know, and the dude says, like, she wasn't a bad woman, Judge Dredd. She just had these crazy mixed up ideas. And he says, then let that let this be a lesson to you, citizen. Democracy's not for the people. And that's. It's, but but again, that's a great line. Yeah. But if the story had ended there, right. it wouldn't have the impact that it does because it doesn't end. Mm -hmm. It immediately follows up with Dread basically going, okay, the husband just doesn't seem to be involved, but let's watch the kids. The kids could be dangerous. And then you get more of the letter and it ends with what kind of mother could stand by and see her babies grow up into frightened, beaten people like us. Oh, oh, oh my God. And that's the, that's the bit where they change the series forever. Yeah. Right. Because you can't have, and they will, they will literally go back to having like citizens are funny. Yeah. But you can't fully. You know, I think one of the things that was interesting for me is, you know, I spent a lot of time worrying about how much I could, you know, the, I think I told you, like, the whole story that I felt really walked me through whether what level I was supposed to take dread being a, a fascist on. And I think it was the yes, whole. Yeah. yeah. And. And so well, it was like volume four or something. Yeah. We're like, with, they're like, here's multiple concentration camps. Right. And we were both like, oh shit. Right. Exactly. But then weirdly, it sort of follows it up with this thing of like Wagner and Grant. I felt being just like, this is just a conduit for us to tell stories. Like, don't sort of the don't, don't worry. We're seriously. not we're not really fascist. You don't even you know. And and so in a way, I kind of stopped worrying about the. Is Dredd a fascist character? Is Judge Dredd a fascist strip? I just kind of like learned to love the bomb. And so when they break this out, like, th you know, three or four volumes after I felt like I'd made my piece for it, it's it's brutal. It is. It's yeah. great because it's literally long after you've kind of stopped worrying about it. 
it, they mm-hmm. bring it back in the heaviest way possible. And and it's so like it is just great. Yeah. Because you know it's not just that you've sort of stopped worrying about it. It's also that in many ways the strip has pulled back on a lot of that. Like the the Farage strip we're talking about before mm-hmm. starts with them disabling the concentration camps. Right. You know, and there's a sense like you know they're like Wagner and Grant pulling back. They're like no, you know yeah. we want this to be kind of funny as mm-hmm. well so we're gonna pull back in some of the more problematic elements yeah and then you get this which is kind of like both of them are like we're only joking yeah you know we just want to emphasize they're the bad guys yeah and like you said coming after the man who knew too much mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know you you do get this element of oh shit <laughs> right yeah yeah no it 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 it, it is it's um it's such an interesting volume in in that way for all the ways that it it reverses that because the other thing I sort of noticed is over certainly by this volume all the sort of traces of the apocalypse war are gone you know what I mean like there's the occasional bit of rubble or two in uh, with Nosferatu but there's not that like there's no runaway weather problems like the weather's back under control like the mega city one has sort of gone back to being i mean it's it's the reason why it's a hellscape now has so much to do with the unemployment and the misery of the people but it's not quite that sort of it's not it's it it doesn't feel as much like an out of control slum in the same way as it used to and and so for it to change from that, and it's sort of a quote-unquote rosier picture, and then the problem is, as you, as I think you put it an episode or two ago, the problem really might be the judges. You know, the judges could really be the problem here as much or more than an out-of-control weather storm or whatever rubble is. You know, it's like in the past, it was like the megacities were so big and population was so out of control that that dread in the judges feels like a well they're just they're just trying to like play catch up you get exactly. the feeling that they are a, a victim as much as anyone else yeah exactly and then this volume is very clear that's not the case yes. and what's interesting is they follow up letter from a democrat with what on first glance looks like a very light story mm-hmm. there's a judge and he's having an affair and he's being blackmailed by sits right but the end of that story underscores the judges are inhuman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The end of that story is the judges just don't understand that this other judge could fall in love with someone. Yeah. And they, they send him to Titan and they're like, I, ha, was it worth it? And he's like, yes. Yes. <laughs> of course it was. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, which is because it is it's underscoring again. Like the judges are not like us. And you know, you get that again, you get the love story. Mm-hmm. Uh, thing where we're dread, a woman's like, Dread, I love you. And he's like, I only love the law. Don't you fucking get it? And yeah. he, he doesn't, he obviously doesn't say, Don't you fucking get it. But he all but does. Oh, he all but he, does. He's yeah. upset at her. What don't you understand? You're mm-hmm. an idiot. Yes. I could never love you. Yeah. That's not what I am. Yes. And it's this weird thing in this volume where seemingly out of nowhere, like maybe what re-energizes it is Wagengrant have realized they don't really like Judge Dredd. It could be. It absolutely could be. And so 
they keep him to the background. I yeah, I don't know. I think honestly, what it is is that they just keep like they find them whenever they found themselves maybe waffling, and they just double down on it. Which is that idea of like, you know what, dread is dread is a shit, you know. And that's kind of the for for now. It you know maybe it'll change again. But this is this is what's interesting to them about dread is a little bit of after eight, eight or nine years where he's not ambiguously, where he's not definitively a hero. He's not definitively a villain. They're like able to be like, okay, I'm bored with that. We can, we can tell stories in which he is the villain or he is emblematic of what's wrong, not what's right. And, yeah, and and, it, and and you've seen it shift because mm-hmm. it was like when it starts, like Dread is the hero. Yeah. He's definitely the hero, and he's loved by the city. Mm-hmm. Like when you go back and read that first volume, one of the things that's so surprising is like the citizens hold parades in favor of the judges. Right, like they love them. Yeah, uh, and then you get to the point where the judges are basically just like struggling to keep up. Mm-hmm. Shit happens, and the judges are just trying to keep control. Right, and then you get here. The judges are gassing people mm-hmm. on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. They're just sticking it in with clouds. Yeah. And when challenged, they're like, well, we've got it or things are going to get more violent. Yeah. Like, what do you want us to do? Let uh, let more crime happen? Yeah. Whatever. And then they just kill people for asking for democracy. I mean, sure, yes, they take people hostage in their television station. I get that. But that's not why they're killed. Well, but as I mean, even as you point out in the stories that we talk about, they do that thing with the tranquilizing gas and they're like, we have no choice but to do this. And then later with the with the visit to the block wars, you know, the cadet is like, but can't we make life better for these people? And people are like, what are you, a commie? You know, like it as with everyone in power, they do the I have no choice card and then kind of behind closed doors, someone's like, but isn't there a different way? And it's kind of like, come on, what, what are you? Why are you busting our balls here? You know, what's wrong with you? Are you a commie? You know, that kind of that kind of thing. It it has a lot of. Ugh, I don't know. It's just it. It does. It ends up being a really satisfying volume for that. That being said, um, we're pretty close to the end of the volume, and we may have a, a jumped over a bunch of crucial stuff well, in the I, middle. I, well, I don't know, but I, I, well, I want to say something, which mm-hmm. is, I like this volume a lot. I really do. I think it's a very strong volume, especially compared with volume eight, which was kind of bad. Yes, but this is a great volume. It's like there's so much in here. Absolutely. However, I also feel this volume is too long. Oh, interesting. I, I love the volume a lot. And really, by the time that you finish um, The Big Sleep. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like the volume should be over. And it continues for like another 60 pages. Yeah, yeah, completely. And it's just like, oh, no, it's time to stop. And and there's nothing, quote unquote, wrong with like it pays to be mental or, or, or what follows. No, you know, they're, it, they're, some of them are they're good. They're all fine. Yeah. Yeah, zombies is actually a pretty good story, but or even but it's like I'm exhausted by this volume by yeah, that point. Yeah. I I really was, uh, and it, so it does feel, and it's it's curiously long, like it's legitimately long. It's four hundred pages long. Yeah, yeah, completely. Which is a lot. 
odds. Like yeah. it's genuine real odds. Yeah. I'm I'm not quite sure what the logic is in in having so much material in this volume. I I assume that they were trying to capture it by year because of course the the merry tale of the Christmas angel I is an oversized story and I I assume was pulled from an annual or something. No, I think it's I think it's just an irregular prog because all the annual stories go in the restricted files oh, okay. collection. All right, well, yeah, it's it's, it's, a, it's just a, like a weird fifteen page story, yeah, yeah. which is like fine and fun, I mm-hmm. guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a story I should say. It's another Mean Machine story. It is the second time uh, in two stories Mean Machine has appeared in which the story is they've lobotomized them and it doesn't work out. Right. I do wonder whether Wagon Grant know how lobotomy works. Uh, <laughs> Because it really is a sex story where we've lobotomized him. Oh no, his brain regrew. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, which no, um, <laughs> but no. It, it it feels like a really curiously long volume, and we 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 have skipped over a bunch. Um, we skipped over not a good story, but we skipped over the oh, what's it called Grublins or something. Yes, which is like just. It's terrible. Oh God, like, it's the worst. It's a two-part two gribbling gribblings. Yeah, uh, which is like a two-part gremlins. Yeah, it's like of- it's gremlins meets the trouble with tribbles. That's it. That's entirely yeah. it. It's like they're gremlins, but they fuck like tribbles, and so they're everywhere, and and they're underfoot and they're cutesy. Yeah, no, that was that was horrible. The final two-parter and the 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 writers on the storm, aka. The Scooby Doo episode of Judge Dredd was not great at all. I did not. However, like that. it does feature astonishing artwork from Brenda McCarthy. I wasn't so crazy about the oh, art. I love it. Oh I, my god, I love the art in the, I, that two part. I don't know. It so, was so great. Uh, it didn't. It didn't work for me as well as as previous art from McCarthy. I was like, eh. So yeah, but yes, I can see where you're into it. Um. What was the what was the other one? Mega Man, which is just like eh, whatever. But like you know, overall, and also I, I oddly feel like we've read that story before. Oh, absolutely, with with nothing new really added to it. You know, but again, it's, you know, we're talking about the cycling through of stories and cycling yeah, through of readers, right? Absolutely. So it's like someone's like, okay, well, here's another story where you know we put a superhero in here and then Dread kicks him in the balls. You know, so. Yeah. yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff in here. It's it is. It's just in a way it's too long. Uh Beggar's Banquet did nothing for me other than other than um Higgins art is great. And again, the ending of Beggar's Banquet, which is about a bunch of cannibalistic homeless people, that last page is such a these are people just trying to survive in a situation that was that is not of their making you know uh, that part is again it's something that seems to be about this volume is even the stuff that is relatively like oh wagner and grant can like do this in their sleep and have two or three times before like there's at least a little something in a lot of them yeah even in the quote-unquote throwaways yeah there's a uh desperation yeah, or like a a, a, a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, I can't get over the lemming story and quite how God, I love that. Yeah. Like, like uh, inhuman the judges come across in that. Well, because because the story is literally 
these people live lives where there is no hope mm-hmm. and they kill themselves. And the judges it, too go like, well, it's got to be something. Like, why are they doing it? Right. Until they learn they're doing it because they have no hope. And when you have no hope, why not kill yourself? Yeah. And then they're like, oh, well, well, it's just going to happen again then. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's breathtakingly nihilistic. <laughs> it is. But it's also, again, all too horribly relevant for some of the real life analogs we could tie it to, you know, these days, which I won't bother with because I feel like it's people have eyes. They know what I'm talking about here. But yeah, no, it is breathtaking nihilistic. And it's also in a way that, yeah, woof. Anyway, so Graham, um, I guess we sort of should we quote unquote wrap it up, talk about whether or not like to to turn your question around on me. Is this a volume that you would recommend to the new Dread Reader? Yeah, it is. Uh, it would be a volume. It would be a Dread Reader that is looking for something in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, which honestly, I think is a Dread Reader who's looking for the subtext of Dread. Mm. If someone is like, what is Dread really about? Mm-hmm. This is the volume, right? Mm-hmm. See, I feel uh, like you've said a lot of things about the continuity. This would not be a good first volume to, I think this isn't the first, of course, you know, it's not the first volume that I would have someone read, but if I gave them one of the other volumes and they were like, wow, thanks. I really enjoyed volume five and volume two. Should I move on to volume six or volume four? I might and you'd be, be like, like, no, go to volume nine. Yeah, exactly. So in fact, I think what might be fun is on our 12th episode, you know, our year's worth of dread would be for us to each rank the 12 volumes in in order of preference or not. Maybe that maybe that's just insane. But. Uh, yeah, but we're going to do that in our 13th episode because <laughs> for for reasons that I'll get to soon enough. No, it's it's a really it feels like and we've said this before about mm-hmm. other volumes, but it feels like, again, Wagner and Grant are reworking their thesis about what this strip is. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and and that it comes after a year of them not really digging it mm-hmm. or not knowing what they're doing or something. Like yeah. they did lose their mojo in their previous volume. It was yes. it was obvious. It was clear, and they are incredibly re-energized here. But with that feeling of them being re-energized, comes this new, like not even subtext. Yes, of, no, it's not. Mega City One is hell. Yeah. And the judges are the devils. Yes. Yeah. No, I feel like there's a good case to be made that that part of what was tiring Wagner and Grant was the idea of trying to keep that subtext, you know, trying to walk that line. This is them being getting the energy from being, fuck it, we're just going to commit to it and see where we go, you know. And But what's so strange is they do then... Like, they don't go full tilt at it. No. You know, they do Letter from a Democrat, and then they're like, ah, time for some wacky hijinks again. Like, it pays to be mental is a wacky hijinks story. Oh, completely. Yeah. You know, like, there's a character who's like, haha, I can break the fourth wall, but everyone thinks I'm insane. Yeah, exactly. You know, here's my wacky psychiatrist, mm-hmm. and I'm going to make him think he's crazy. Ha 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 ha. Right. So it's really interesting that that Wagner Grant do outright say 
the judges are the bad guys. Yeah. On more than one occasion. They're gassing people. Wacky hijinks story. Yep. You know, they're, they're killing people who want democracy and say that democracy isn't like they basically you can't get democracy, which is a textual way of what they said earlier in the volume when they fucking kill Dave. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like they kill the democratically elected mayor of the city. Yeah. And then like wacky hijinks story. They, it's, but it doesn't feel like they're walking it back either. No. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's not like they're going, oh, we're only joking. It's just this weird thing where they're like, Dread is enough Dread is big enough as a strip. Dread right. isn't human enough as a character that he can exist simultaneously in the, these realities. Well I, Because sorry on you. No, 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 no. I'm cutting you off. You should finish because I I have a theory that grows out of that. So but you should finish. Well, I, I was going to say because Dread's lack of inner life. Mm-hmm allows him to be unknowable enough to exist in these stories without it seeming contradictory. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that's a good good point. I what I was going to say is I feel like earlier dread has the juxtaposition of the wacky and the dark and the ambiguity and the subtext and or text usually within the same stories. And I feel like Wagner and Grant are kind of getting more into the idea of like, no, we can do an all dark story and then follow it with an all goofy story. And and so the juxtaposition, instead of being in the same panel or on the same page, is within the quote unquote same series, maybe. And so it does allow them to to push everything further which is amazing considering how much further they push things than say again just some somebody like when mills was trying to figure out how to do dread or his idea of doing dread like mm-hmm. you know they were like no there's a there's a different way to do it and and it's big enough to fit everything in it now they're really sort of kicking that they figured out i guess the next way out which is turn up the heat within each of those individual stories and then sort of let the stories act as buffers for one another. And somehow, like you said, there's enough con- there's enough dread is un- is iconic enough that he can hold all those stories together and you know is somehow flat enough to be to to be able to hold all the ambiguity and contradiction about him together, I guess, you know? So I, I, I have to ask, as someone who didn't know this was coming, because mm-hmm. I did, like I knew Letter from Democrat was coming. Right. The story where the journalist, we should actually talk a little bit more about the story where the journalist discovers the gas. Sure. Um, because the end of that story is is even darker. Yes. The, this It's a three-part story, or maybe a two-part story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's three. Where a journalist witnesses uh, uh, the destruction of a spaceship, or a, a flying craft. Right. And gets suspicious, because basically the judges are lying, and he knows the judges are lying, and so he starts looking into it. Mm-hmm. And as a result, he discovers that the judges are literally putting a tranquilizing gas into the air through the weather system to keep the people placid, yeah. for want of a better way of putting it. 
the end of the story is well the framing device of the story is dread uh, the journalist is telling this to an editor yeah of a newspaper um the end of the story is dread comes out and is like i i all i've known this all along i want to see what you're going to do with the information first of all we're going to forbid you from publishing it through a j notice which you may or may not know do you know d notices in the uk no the government can actually stop the press publishing things in the uk mm. by slapping something called a d notice on it okay which is basically it's a, it's come from world war Two, and it's basically this would be harmful to the country if you publish it mm-hmm. and we get to decide what that means mm-hmm. right so it's, it's a very dangerous thing right mm-hmm. um, and explicitly so in this story you know mm-hmm. it's not just that like that's disturbing enough as is but then it's you either have to say you're never going to tell anyone or we're going to lobotomize you. Mm-hmm. And then they lobotomize him. Yes. <laughs> they lobotomize him. Yeah. That's that's the end. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Which is it's just horrific. Yeah. No. And, you know, also it's worth pointing. It's a motherfucker of a story because it is two parts. It's only two motherfucking parts. Um that story hauls ass and is yeah. uh, and feels bigger than it is because it it really shows it shows as much as it tells like the whole sequence where he sneaks in and finds out what's going on and then it cuts to him like pitching his editor and dread drags him out and yeah then he gets lobotomized there's the christmas story which ends with you know it because it's like 14 pages it even has like a subplot which has the judges uh putting christmas food out in the cursed earth and all these mutants are like thanks judges you're not so bad after all and the only reason why it's there is to to bring in these criminals and and then when the judges are like okay there's enough of them gathered around the food they gun them down and then are like, okay, bring in the food. We'll try it tomorrow in the South Sector Muties. And it's just like, it's such a, it's such a, um, it's such a little thumb in the eye of the heartwarming Christmas story in that regard. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I mean, that entire Christmas story is fairly uh, thumb in the eye. Of the oh, completely, Christmas. completely. <laughs> like it's it's a wonderfully bad mooded Christmas story. Oh, very much so, very much. So. Um, but 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 um. So you you get the the journalist story first. You get the the tranquilizing story first. Yeah, which is very dark. Like mm-hmm. it's very dark. Yes, and is very um, the judges are the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Did you think they were going to go darker? Uh, that's a good question. Because you know, I have to say one of the things that the thing that is interesting about. Um, about the end of the man who knows too much is it's horrifying, but it is, but it's darkly comic. You know what I mean? Like that ending, which is literally him being strapped to the table and them like lobotomizing him. And he's like, ah, and they cut to him screaming and you see the exterior of the building or whatever. That's the, by turning around and turning it into camp there's an immediate distancing effect and so Mm -hmm. as tough as the man who knew too much is 
the framework for it, right down to the title, which is an homage to a Hitchcock movie. Like, there's lots of stuff in it that seem it seems it it, it seems like it's a laugh. It's a dark laugh, but it's a laugh. And so, one of the things that's great about a Letter from a Democrat is, to me, it there wasn't really apart from the fact that her husband's name is Gort rather than Gord. It didn't really strike me as funny, especially like you said, there's one or two bits or pieces, but I never thought it was going to go funny. And then it just it it makes it a point to avoid any camp. It doesn't it doesn't leaven it up at all. So the man who knew too much had a little bit of a um, oh, that's kind of dark, but it didn't feel like it was going to stick. So Letter from a Democrat was a little surprising. And then what surprises in addition to, oh, it's back, is the fact that it is, um, it's not funny. There, it, the fact that it's not being played for laughs in a way that the man who knew too much probably it probably isn't funny, but is being played for laughs in a way, if you know what I mean, by camping it up a little bit. I mean, sure, that could yeah. just be Brechtian distancing or, or what have you. But but Letter from a Democrat really doesn't – it doesn't let you get away. And, uh, and, and I'm so impressed for it, for that, you know. You know, and yet then it's also over in seven pages and it's on, it's on to something else, you know. It's – Is it – it's fair – the Felucci Sorry. tape. Yeah, it's which is the two or three part, you know, your rogue judge story, which, again, is, you know, in its own way, kind of a grim piece of crime fiction, but is also, you know, a lark compared to what you just read. So, yeah, to, to sure. answer your question in way too many words, letter from a Democrat knocked me on my ass. I sort of knew it was coming because I only because you mentioned it. In the oh boy oh boy at the end of last episode, so I perked up when I saw the title. But holy shit! I mean, it's still just a holy shit for me, Graham. Is it? It's fair to say that that's probably your favorite story in the volume, right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. But again, between that, like that Midnight Surfer, and of course me, I like West Side Rumble, which you are like, feh. So. Those would be my three favorites in the issue, basically. And for yourself, I'm guessing it's Letter from a Democrat, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and Midnight Surfer, or are you... Uh, it's Midnight Surfer, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Is it really called The Man Who Knew Too Much? We keep calling it that, and I'm not sure that's actually what it's called. Yeah, I think it's called The Man Who um, Knew Too Much. Let's let's try and find out. I, Of course, this is when I also can't remember where it is in the book, which makes it difficult to find. Yeah, it's hard to find. Uh, um, let's see. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm trying to go. Through if you look at page 116, 117, the man who knew too much, part two, and then okay, yeah. So yeah, so it's what it, who what is to me is it's the man who knew too much is Midnight Surfer, and it's the Lemming story. Oh yeah, in the Lemming the story, Lemming story, yeah, 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 like the Lemming story actually knocked me on mass in the same way that Letter from a Democrat did for you. Yeah, um, just because it is. So um, banal or so offhandedly just being like, yeah, people are going to die because everything is terrible. Okay, but let yeah. me ask you this. Do you feel that Ron Smith's art helps, hinders, or neither does neither to, to the story's end? 
Uh, I wish that Ron Smith hadn't drawn it. Yeah. I wish that it had been Kennedy. Mm-hmm. I feel that Smith uh, unintentionally skews everything towards comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a comedic story, ultimately. And it, it reads like one at the start. When mm-hmm. the idea is like maybe something has gone wrong, it does read like one. Like the, the, the people are jumping out of the building. Yeah. And and you get characters being like, oh, that can't be Ethel. Ethel's visiting so-and-so. Oh, there's so-and-so. Yes, right. You know, like also yeah. falling out of the window. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, there is those that, again, very dark humor. Um, but by the end, it's not a comedic strip. And so I wish Smith hadn't drawn it. Yeah. But I wouldn't say that it kills it. Per se. Mm. I think it still works. Oh, it's still it's still a hugely powerful story. It's in it's I listed my top three. It would make the top five easily because I love it. But at the same time, I'm not sure if Smith's sort of semi expressionless faces of the people as they jump out of the building works to or for sure it or exactly. Against it. Yeah, exactly. You know does I mean? that does that actually work against? Because again, it works when you think it's a comedy. Right. The problem for me is that Smith doesn't nail the turn. You know, it's interesting. Whereas for me, I think my problem is um, I've seen Smith do inspired art and I've seen him do uninspired art or rather like art where he can put, put a lot into it and part where he's got a deadline to hit. And sometimes when he's got a deadline to hit, like, I think that's the, like, everyone having mannequin faces as they fall out of that building to me is kind of, uh, I don't read it as, as a disturbing blankness of people who have given up on life. I read it as somebody who's got to draw half a dozen faces in their double page spread and they're Ron Smith, you know? Well, like, we've talked about the Ron Smith story before, right? Uh, yeah, the one where he's getting paid by, he, he yeah, he basically draws how much he needs to, like works how hard he needs to to make a certain amount of money per day. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, yeah, and that and that unfortunately that this is one of those stories where it kind of feels like that, but but some but I'm very split. Half the time, the banality of that is sort of what underscores the horror of it. Like I almost feel like. Like you said, because it feels like it's a funny story and then it ends up being not a funny story. And in fact, in a way, it doesn't even end up being a story because the point of it is that, like, it's just going to happen again. Yeah, exactly. It's not a plot. Yeah. Like, it's literally not a plot. There's Mm -hmm. nothing has made these people do this other than genuine, like, existential dread. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like which which just happens. Again, you know, the dreads as a as a series has had footsie for, for since it started. Yes. The idea of like the future is so horrible that people are going to go mad. And this is when it's like the madness isn't going to be they're going to go fun they're going to go funnily mad. Yeah. They're not going to go going to insane in a way that means an adventure story. They're going to go insane in a way that means they're just going to kill themselves. Well, uh what's that um is it spring or whatever it is? You know the 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 Super Bowl thing that they cover themselves in and go bouncing about in oh, an yeah, earlier yeah, volume, yeah. like yeah. there's there's no there's nothing there's no sprung here. This is people just leaping from buildings. You know it's yes. and 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 so it ends up being uh, kind of in a way like Letter from a Democrat, 
kind of is, where it's like everyone in Letter from a Democrat really knows the score. The judges know the score. The 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 quote unquote terrorists know the score. Like everyone has no illusions about what's really going on. And I one of the things that I kind of like about the Lemming uh, incident, among other the Lemming syndrome, is that idea that um, all the other foolishness of Mega City One is kind of a thing that can distract you from what's actually happening. And every once in a while you get stories that are like, oh no, but this is what's really happening. Again, in that sort of, you know, if we were have if we were doing the read through of Drock in 2012, as opposed to 2019, I mm-hmm. think it would have a very different, the stories yeah. would have a different tone for me. It yes. Would, you know, yes. like it'd be like, oh, ha, 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 how quaint. And now I'm like, oh, fucking hell. You know. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um. Yeah. But th- those those would be my three, my three big ones. Mm-hmm. I I think I just I think this is a really really good volume. But part of that is, it's actually a really tough volume. Yeah. On that upbeat note, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> on that upbeat note, I when I said thirteen episodes, you were like, we when we get to the end of the year, we should do the twelve books. No. Oh. For this reason, next stroke, we're going to do Judge Dread Restricted Files Volume 1. Oh, we are. Which is a collection of the stories from the annuals and the specials mm-hmm. uh, from the origins of 2008 through 1985 when this volume was released. Mm. Or the stories this volume was released. Wow. It's literally dizzying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, Dread has gone through a considerable evolution. Mm-hmm. In these nine years, and you get to see that, yeah, compressed in, in one volume. Yeah, fast forward, uh, and it's it's very strange. Mm-hmm. It's legitimately very strange. Um, in there is one of the first Judge Dredd stories I ever read. Ooh, I think the first time I ever read Judge Dredd was I got a secondhand copy of the second 2080 annual. Mm-hmm. Wow, has like very off-model Dredd story in there. That's awesome. Uh, so it's it's in there, but yeah, that's what we're going to do next time. So we're going to keep things vaguely on track, mm-hmm. uh, but we're going to wait a while before we go to volume ten. Mm-hmm. So next month, Judge Dredd: The Restricted Files, Volume One, is going to be drunk. Okay. Now you know. <laughs> um, I should wrap things up, shouldn't I? Yeah, I think you should, Graham. Uh, there will be show notes for this episode up at waitwhatpodcasts.com sometime on monday uh in the meantime you can check out our tumblr waitwhatpod.tumblr.com you can check out our instagram instagram.com forward slash waitwhatpod and you can check out our twitter account at waitwhatpodcast jeff has a twitter account at lazybastid at l-a-z-y-b-a-s-t-i-d and i have a twitter account at graham m at g-r-a-e-m-e-m and Drock exists as a concept, as a podcast, as a monthly listening Saturnalia because of something <laughs> called Patreon, which Jeff is going to tell you all about. Yes, I am. Although I'm very bummed that I can't use a word half as groovy as Saturnalia to, to do so. Uh, yeah. Bacchanalia. Yeah, there we go. A dreadanalia. So, uh, a still magnolia. Uh, everyone... 
we're so incredibly grateful for all of our listeners. Uh, it is crazy how long we've been doing the Wait What podcast. Sometimes I think about that and it gives me a pause. Nonetheless, we're still enjoying what we're doing. And that is due to uh, everyone who listens and passes along feedback, who sends us questions and just generally makes a point to let us know that they appreciate it and and appreciate our two cents such as it were um and the fine people on patreon who uh more or less take our two cents and match it with two cents or more uh they throw us a little bit of uh a few uh mega city credits to uh to help make this all possible um as i mentioned earlier baxter building where we read through the first 416 issues of fantastic four and this uh, podcast, Rock, where we are reading through a considerable amount of Judge Dredd and having an amazing time doing it so far, uh, is directly a result of your support and your hard-earned dosh being thrown our way. We're incredibly grateful for that. And we should mention that we're also incredibly grateful for Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, uh, for her continuing support of this podcast as well as her continuing support of the judges of Mega City One. Graham? And of life itself. Indeed. Indeed. Jeff, don't, drop, don't drop the gag that Empress Audrey is the thing that could destroy us at any given moment. <laughs> I like don't, the don't, fact that you want that, that brought go. back. Yeah, no, it is true. It is a it is a rich gift. It is a it is a, a that that um that uh, that Audrey of Damocles hanging over our head, as it were. Um, the cat of Damocles. Anyway, uh, Graham, I guess, do you have anything else to say before I quote unquote sing us out? I do. I, I want everyone to know that if they listen to Wait What podcasts as well as the Drog podcast, um, we're back with a regular Wait What next week. And we're going to be talking about boof stuff. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it, who can even tell at this point? Yeah, no kidding. Um, but uh, regular Wait What next week, and then we're going to be back in a month with Judge Dredd, The Restricted Files, Volume 1. Just to be clear, everyone, we're not taking a month off between those. We're just saying, if you like the Drock, show up in a month. If you like what we do, we'll be here next week. And be that up. seems to make sense. Yeah. yeah. Jeff, sing us out. Oh, yes. Well, um, thank you so much for joining us, everyone. And until next time, Drock! You're under arrest, citizen. Report to the isocubes. <laughs>